The word of the Lord from John's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. All those who do evil hate the light, and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Those who live by the truth come into the light, so that it may be seen plainly what they have, that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus. Thanks be to God. Most of us, if we think of mission at all, we think in terms of Ackroyd and Belushi. Being on a mission from God means we're getting the band back together. Being on a mission from God means being weirdly engaged in strange and perhaps compulsive behavior. It might include blues music. It might even include driving to Chicago. Who knows? Truth told, the church respects its missionaries for their cheery compulsiveness, but we tend not to respect mission. Because we don't want to be overbearing or dominating or manipulative. And the truth is, much of Western mission practice has been, in the last 500 years, colonial in attitude, imperial in theology, and downright myopic in practice. Cue your favorite passage of the Poisonwood Bible here. As opposed to being truly serving truly discerning, truly reconciling. Our missional goal has far too often been focused on changing behaviors and changing behaviors towards conformity with our dominant culture rather than demonstrating how Jesus reconciles the heart of all creation. My friend Stuart Murray Williams tells such a story from his own church planting days in the Rough Edge Tower Hamlets neighborhood of East London, a place where church attendance has been in decline for over a century. He tells the story of Mike, not his real name, but Mike was a young man who Stuart befriended in the neighborhood. Mike lived with his elderly parents in a three-room flat above the garage where he worked on cars. Stuart befriended Mike, and ultimately through conversations with Stuart and others, Mike gave his life to Christ welcomed the good news into his being. Now it turns out that Mike could not just work on cars, but he could play the guitars as well. And so, of course, the church in Tower Hamlets asked him to join the worship band. And therein is the rub. Mike, having surrendered his life to Jesus, now is expected to maintain a diary of scheduled meetings, we need to plan worship, after all, and practices. We need to rehearse. 
And oh yeah, you need to be 30 minutes early to worship service so we can put everything together. Mike wants a happy-go-lucky, carefree mechanic with a very simple life. Get up in the morning, work on cars, play guitar between repairs, and enjoy life, was now confronted with the need to impose a highly disciplined schedule on his life. Close the shop and go to rehearsal. Could you please clean the grease from out from under your fingernails because it doesn't look too good on stage? Say no to opportunities to jam late into the night because, well, you had to play at worship the next morning. It didn't go well. And Stuart found himself increasingly discipling Mike on the way to plan his day more effectively. And then one day it happened. Mike showed up to rehearsal on time with clean fingernails and with a brand new Filofax in his hand. Filofax is a British brand of a paper calendar scheduler. Mike proudly showed Stuart his Filofax, all filled out and his life properly scheduled. Stuart was in that moment torn. He was happy to have a consistent and well-groomed musician on the worship team. But he also wondered in that moment if he hadn't reduced discipleship and following Jesus into a race toward middle-class values. Stuart had to wonder if the point of the gospel was to make us right with God or to increase our proficiency, to enable our efficiency to get our ability to impose our order over what others might think of as chaos. We are on a mission from God. Whether we wear sunglasses and fedoras or not, the fact that we are on a mission from God is central to Christian discipleship. But what does that mission look like? What is the essence of the missional call to God's people? The story of Jesus and Nicodemus offer us some insight into God's searching missionary purpose for us and our calling to be God's missionaries in the world. Now, John's Gospel is different than the other three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of common stories. They're organized in roughly similar ways. They, they present to us a kind of consistent set of themes about Jesus, John's gospel goes off the rails and takes us in a different direction. It's an attempt to link two incredible statements that the gospel makes. At the beginning, John's gospel says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we all have the Vicini moment. Inconceivable. Not possible that God would do that. And at the end of the gospel, it's asserted by John that these words have been made known to you so that you will know Jesus is the Messiah and in him you have life. Two inconceivable statements mashed together. And everything in the middle tries to point to the truth of those two statements. Between the prologue and the conclusion of John's Gospel, there's a book of signs. Chapter 1, 9, uh, uh, Chapter 1, verses 19 
1250, and a book of glory, 131 to 2031. And then chapter 21 is an epilogue about forgiveness. And in this book of signs, 119 to 1250, there are four cycles, four sets of stories. Jesus' call to serve God's mission, 119 to 51. Jesus fulfilling God's mission among the people, 21 to 454. Jesus redefining temple worship as missional action, 51 to 1042. And Jesus preparing for his missional sacrifice, 11, 1 to 1250. The encounter with Nicodemus then comes in the middle of this missional engagement Jesus undertakes as an itinerant rabbi traveling from Cana in Galilee back to Cana in Galilee. In 2.1, we read that Jesus is at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And in 4.46, we read that he returns to Cana. And in between there, this passage is structured rhetorically for a purpose. John 3, 1 to 21 is a time of missional reflection between a whole set of actions. At the front end of the story, Jesus offers signs of God's redemptive mission. There's the miracle at the wedding in Cana, 2, 1 to 11. And there's a cleansing in the temple, 2, 13 to 22. These are signs of Jesus' authority over the everyday realities and over the social structures that shape our lives. Jesus is asserting himself, I am the incarnated Son of God. Pay attention. On the other side of the Nicodemus story, Jesus bears witness to God's redemptive mission. He has a dialogue with the Samaritan woman for 4 verses 4 to 42, and he heals a local official's son in Cana, 4 46 to 54. In these passages, the redemptive mission of God is presented as one that transcends boundaries of gender and race and class and power. The good news is for everyone, the good news is for a Samaritan woman. And not just any Samaritan woman, a rather loose Samaritan woman. And the gospel is for a synagogue official's son and his family. The good news is for everyone. And it doesn't matter your social location or, or the way in which society has buttonholed you and, and, and defined you. The good news is for you. In the middle of all this, then, is the conversation with Nicodemus. And it's a conversation, verses 1 to 15 of chapter 3, that is a conversation between two rabbis on theology. So it is dense, obtuse, and full of questions. So John, John takes editorial privilege, and he interprets the conversation for us in verses 16 to 21, which is the bulk of the passage I read for us this morning. And what John does is he summarizes the Jesus-Nicodemus conversation around four critical theological assertions. First, we're reminded that God loves everyone. God loves everyone. And that love is actively searching and redeeming in nature. 
God's love doesn't just mean that God feels good about us or that God wants to give our lives lots of warm fuzzies. God seeks us. That's the nature of God's love. God has an all-points bulletin out for our lives. The character of God is to be relentless in drawing us back to himself. Now, all of this might sound like some bad and creepy divine kind of stalking, except that we are created in the image of God. God is simply looking for that which he made that has been lost. We would do the same thing. The prologue of John's Gospel is deliberately constructed to remind us of the book of Genesis and the creation narratives in the first two chapters and to realize again that God has made us to be in His image and desiring ultimately a relationship with Him. Blaise Pascal, the Enlightenment philosopher, said we all have a God-shaped vacuum in our souls. And so, God, the one who was wronged in the garden, is the one who seeks reconciliation with every broken human relationship. And God is doing this through Jesus. God loves everyone. Secondly, John asserts in verses 17 to 18 that condemnation, the judgment that we don't measure up to God's standards, is a self-imposed judgment. Not, a, not divine retribution. The mission of God is not to get in our face and tell us how bad we are. The mission of God is not about cataloging our naughtiness. The mission of God is to love us. We have a pretty good handle on how awful and hideous we can be. Even, the, even those among us who... who uh, operate by the gospel of Stuart Smiley, you know? I, we, uh, we know that there are dark places in our souls. But God's mission is reunion, not punishment. John then tells us thirdly in verses 19 to 20 that there's this light versus dark reality in our lives. He uses these categories to describe the struggle we all go through to figure out how to be in the world. Now this imagery of light versus darkness was common imagery to the religious life of anybody who lived in the Greco-Roman Empire of Jesus' time. In fact, as far back as Alexander the Great, 350 years before Jesus, philosophers from Greece had been carrying this image of struggle, light versus darkness, across the known world, from Spain to India. Any religious searcher of John's day, whether from the fringes of the empire, or the center of the empire, or beyond the empire, would get what John was talking about here. Life is a moral struggle. But John adds a note in verse 21, an essential piece to the puzzle. He reveals that this light is incarnated in Jesus. You want to know what light looks like? It looks like Jesus, John says. Jesus 
didn't just give us a good example about how to do it well. Jesus is the light, John proclaims. The incarnation is God's missionary endowment spent on our behalf. So that no matter the atmospheric conditions that we live in, or the amount of luminosity in our eyes, we can know with confidence God's love always seeks us out. God's love always is on the lookout for us. Joy in relationship replaces light versus darkness. Living in light means letting go of the struggle and welcoming the joy of God's redemptive purpose. Conversation with Nicodemus then is a conversation about God's missionary strategy of seeking out and redeeming a creation that has become alienated from him. And so it pivots back to us. Because you and I are the continuing story of that redemptive work. We are now carriers of God's missionary quest to redeem the world. Jesus commissions his disciples in John chapter 20. He says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The commission that Jesus gives in John's Gospel is a commission rich with symbol and substance. We are sent like Jesus was sent. We have the Holy Spirit like Jesus had the Spirit of God. And we are to forgive others like Jesus was called to forgive others. God the missionary God has through Christ made us disciples, apprentices of His mission. The mission that Jesus was on continues through Jesus' body, the church. So, we are on a mission from God. Mission is not one more widget to cram onto the superstructure of our lives. Mission is not one more task to do, like cleaning the grease out from under our nails. It is the organizing principle of discipleship. It's why Mike got a Philofax. Because mission requires relationships, and relationships require intentionality. A relationship without an appointment is a good idea, but it's not a relationship. Weddings and temple engagements were scheduled even in the ancient world. And Jesus knew that only the loosest of women would come to the well at Sychar at noon in the heat of the day. The Cana official drops his schedule and redirects his time to Jesus when he hears that he's in town. The missionary God lets us know that life is no accident and that God seeks us and continues to seek us no matter what. So this morning, some questions for you to reflect on. First of all, how do I feel? How do you feel as a child of God in your setting? What attitudes, behaviors, thoughts, resentments, or feelings 
are you holding on to that suggest you're operating more as a victim or a prisoner under the thumb of culture than an ambassador of God's mission? What holds you back from being the one who forgives the unforgivable? What holds you back from being the one who offers grace to the ungraceful? What keeps you from loving the unlovely? Are you a victim? Are you a prisoner? What keeps you from becoming an ambassador of the kingdom's cause? Reconciliation. Secondly, in, in what ways do I withdraw into the safe zone of non-engagement? When, when do, where do I go so that I don't need my Philofax? So that I don't need to schedule time with people? And where do I need to ask God to embolden me to be His missionary? And what do I need to accept And what do I need to let go of in order to meaningfully assume my identity of being a missionary of God's shalom in my city? What will it take for us to shed the excuses and the lies and the corruption that that sneaks into our lives and welcome God's call? For I have loved the world so much that I sent Jesus. The Jesus who said, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. One more thing. N.T. Wright, wish we were related, but we're not. As he puts it, every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation. Every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to talk. Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed which spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation which God will one day make. This is the logic of the mission of God. Brothers and sisters, you and I are called in our our call to be Christ's disciples, in our call to be Christ's followers. We are called to be missionaries. Not ones who get upset when the tribe doesn't get into the croc-infested water because they know there are crocs and we don't. But missionaries who instead offer redemption, love, grace, acceptance, forgiveness. This is our missionary call. This is what God has invested his son's life in on our behalf and calls us to do no less. This is the logic of the mission of God. And we are on a mission from God.
Let's pray. Show us, God, day in and day out, what it means to be your missionaries. Not uh, stuffy old geezers who run missionary stations and do missionary program, but people who have been genuinely transformed by your grace and can't help but infuse that transformation into our everyday lives. Call us to that missionary way of life. Call us to that missionary purpose. For you love the world so much that you sent your Son, and He sends us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.